welcome nerds from around the world. Grab yourself a tasty beverage, get comfy, and prepare to get your nerd on as we dive into the world of computing past, present, future. This is Lunduk's Big Tech Show for Sunday, March 26th, 2023. You may have noticed... There was no show last week. March 19th came and went, and oh my word, oh my heavens, there was no Lunduk's Big Tech Show. I came down with, I'm pretty sure, and this is just a rough approximation, every single virus known to man. (laughs) It was brutal. So I, this is actually the first full day, uh, really starting late yesterday, when I can speak without hacking up a lung. It is a beautiful thing to be able to breathe normally again. Holy heaven. So I'm I'm on the mends. I'm recovering. I'm still recovering, but I'm good enough to finally hit record on this show and start speaking all of the thoughts that have been bouncing around in my head over the last two weeks that I haven't been able to share. It has been driving me slowly crazy. Let's start with some of the big news. There's really big news this week in that Gordon Moore has passed away at 94 years old. Now, Gordon Moore is known for a lot of things. He's known as the creator of Moore's Law. He's known as one of the co-founders of Intel. But there are certain facts about this amazing and fascinating nerd's life that get glossed over. Many articles and and blog posts and and tweets and whatnot have been posted about Gordon Moore over the previous few days. And all of them hit on those, those big high notes. But they miss so many of the interesting tidbits, the fascinating drama that led to the creation of the computer industry that, that Gordon Moore was central to. So I wanted to walk you through some of this man's life briefly. And this isn't going to be some sort of, this man was born on such and such a date. No, 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 no. We're just going to hit the interesting dramatic bits. Because there is so much to Gordon Moore's life that it is mind-blowing. To start with, in 1956, when when the computer industry wasn't even fully going yet, he joined Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory. Now, what, what is Shockley Semiconductor? Well, Shockley Semiconductor was run by this guy named Shockley, who had won a Nobel Prize and for, for semiconductor work, and he was kind of considered to be one of the preeminent people in the semiconductor field. And so all eyes were on Shockley. What was he going to produce? And so what Shockley did is he went around to the universities and college, including UC Berkeley, where Gordon Moore was. And he recruited the most brilliant minds that were working in computers and electrical engineering and people who were dabbling in semiconductors. And he brought them all in to Shockley. Shockley was a think tank of all think tanks when it comes to putting together the minds that would ultimately produce the, the CPUs that we use nowadays. And things went terrible. <laughs> While Shockley himself was a great salesman, he managed to find the most brilliant nerds of the time. But by all accounts, he was an absolute 
well, let's just say a terrible. I almost said a naughty word I'm not supposed to say. He was an absolutely terrible manager. Nobody liked working for this guy. So what happened was, the very next year, Gordon Moore, along with seven other people, got together. Seven other people that were all working at Shockley Semiconductor. And they were all upset that they were working for Shockley. It just was not making them happy. They weren't happy with how they were being micromanaged. They weren't happy with the way Shockley was pushing them down paths of research that just didn't make sense to them. Excuse me. See, I'm still getting over it. So these seven, these eight people, Gordon Moore among them, they formed a group that later got labeled by Shockley as the Traitorous Eight, <laughs> which is which is kind of like the Magnificent Seven, except there's eight of them and there's they're and they're traitorous and they're just nerds. And these eight nerds, these eight of the most brilliant nerds of the time, they left Shockley Semiconductor Laboratory. And they got together with some other investors and the like. And they all co-founded together Fairchild Semiconductor. Right? The very next year. 1956, they were at Shockley. 1957, boom, they were, they were co-founding Fairchild. And if you don't know Fairchild, they are, they are oh my gosh, one of the, one of the most pivotal companies in the 1950s and 1960s sort of semiconductor and computer field. And by 1958, Gordon Moore had created the very first silicon transistor at Fairchild that was ever created in Silicon Valley. So here, think about this for a second. Silicon Valley is named after is, is given the nickname after the silicon transistor. The person who created the very first silicon transistor in Silicon Valley was Gordon Moore. Arguably, Silicon Valley has its name because of Gordon Moore. A lot of people miss that, but it's fascinating. And then, and then, Gordon Moore created Moore's Law. (laughs) Now, Moore's Law came about a few years later, in 1965. It's when he first made this uh, half-observation, half-prediction. And the, the observation was simple. The number of transistors in an integrated circuit will double roughly every year. That was the original Moore's Law from 1965. Every year, the number of transistors or components in an integrated circuit will double. Now, by about the mid-70s, there's some debate over whether this is 1974 or 1975. Moore updated it. So the Moore's Law became the number of transistors in, 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 in an integrated circuit doubles roughly every two years. And that's where it's stayed more or less to this day. And it proved to be fairly spot on. Uh, there's, if you if you plot everything out, uh, there's some there's some wiggle room in there, but more or less, he nailed it. He absolutely nailed it. Now, Moore's law. Everyone remembers that. Everyone remembers more for Moore law. Moore's law. And he coined that while he was at 
or initially, initially while he was at Fairchild. But then, in 1968, he left Fairchild. He left this company that had really created so much of, of, of the computer industry at that point with a man named Robert Noyce. And Robert Noyce, which is a great last name because Noyce, uh, but Robert Noyce and him went on to create their own company their own computer hardware company, their own transistor company. And it was, of course, named after Moore and Noyce. Those are the two guys involved. So they named it NM Electronics or, <laughs> depending on which person you ask and which document you read, MN Electronics. They never could figure out which one of their the first letters of their last name would come first in the name of this company they created. Either N&M for Noyce and Moore, or M&N for Moore and Noyce. They never could figure that out. So instead, they dropped that entirely, and they settled on the name Intel, which stood for Integrated Electronics. Intel was created. In fact, in fact, just, just as a side note, their main Hillsboro, Oregon facility, they got a, a whole bunch of buildings, fabrication, all that stuff going on there has been renamed to Gordon Moore Park in his honor. It was renamed a couple of years ago. And I used to I used to live uh, just a couple blocks down from that facility, and, which became Gordon Moore Park. I used to walk by there almost every other day. And uh, it, it, it's absolutely fascinating. A, a, a great place. If you ever get the opportunity to go tour some of the Intel sites in Oregon, I, I highly, highly recommend it. Now, when noise and more left Fairchild, they brought with them Silicon Gate technology. Silicon Gate technology had been in, in process, had been worked on by multiple engineers and researchers while at Fairchild, but Fairchild wasn't pursuing that as aggressively as they thought it should. So the guys from Intel, <laughs> Noyce and more, they took that Silicon Gate technology and they made it big, which ended up laying the foundation for the CPUs we use nowadays. They, they started making memory out of it and everything. It laid the foundation for computing as we know it right there at the end of the 1960s because of Gordon Moore. If you were to create a list of 10 people who through various means, research, design, engineering, marketing, good salesmanship, what have you, made the computing industry what it is today, Gordon Moore would have to be on that list. Absolutely have to be. It, it, his life was amazing. The things he accomplished, starting from those early years when he was on, in the part of the traitorous eight leaving Shockley Semiconductor all the way through to the creation of Intel. Oh my gosh. He will be missed. And he lived to be a ripe old 94 years old. May we all be so lucky. All right. <laughs> so stick around. We got to take a quick break. When we come back, we got a whole bunch more news. Uh, luckily, uh, not all of it is doom and gloom. Only a little. But stick around. We'll be right back. 
What I want you got might be hard to handle Like a flame that burns a candle The candle feeds the flame What I got full stock thoughts and dreams that scatter And you pull them all together And how I can't explain Welcome back to London's Big Tech Show. We got some news this week that I found absolutely adorably entertaining. There's some great, great news here. And some of this really just fell through the cracks. You know, when you read a lot of the big tech news sites, you get a lot of, hey, have you heard about this Docker container version upgrade that this big company is going to be dockerizing with their containers? And you hear about these things. But you miss out on some of this really fun stuff. And some of these things made me do a double take. You let me know if they make you do a little bit of a spit take or a double take as well. There's a little bit of a bummer stuff at the end, but we'll save that for the end because I want to focus on the fun stuff first. Right off the bat, I want to talk about a gigantic, I mean huge, mechanical spider that runs on Linux on a Raspberry Pi. This is crazy. So uh, a team called Hacksmith put this together, and they call it the Mega Hex because it is a gigantic robotic hexapod. And on a, when I say robotic, I'm uh, gigantic. I mean huge. A man can ride it. Like a man sits in the middle of it, and it, in, the, in, the, in the base body part. And the legs sprout out in all directions, giant metal legs. So the whole thing lifts several feet off the ground. It is a fully controllable, pilotable. In fact, they call the person piloting it the pilot spider. It's a giant friggin' robot spider. I mean, it's not giant like Wild Wild West. You remember that one where where Will Smith and was fighting Kenneth Branagh and and he had a giant giant spider that was like two stories tall. It's not that big, but it's still big enough to give me post-apocalyptic steampunk nightmares. It's huge, right? And at its core, it's all running Linux off of a Raspberry Pi for the for the central brain to control all the legs and just kind of make it all all work. It took them a year and a half to build this. Again, it can be ridden around and controlled by by a single pilot that just sits in the middle of it. It's terrifying looking. And what's really cool? What's really cool? They used originally the feet were not feet shaped eventually they just settled on these big giant steel plates for feet so the the legs move as this robot spider crawls through the countryside assumedly coming to murder everybody but originally instead of these big steel plates they used inverted excavator buckets you know what I'm talking about? Like like on a big excavator, those big digging arms, those big digging claws that dig into the dirt. They used those, so they were they were kind of tilted upside down. Um, so it was it was walking along on inverted excavator buckets. But apparently those didn't work quite right. But I, I can't help but think how awesome that is. Because then it can also use the legs to just start randomly clawing and digging at you, which is Ten times more terrifying. Oh, my word. But again, I suppose if you're going to have nightmare fuel like that, a steampunk ride-on 
giant metal iron spider of death. You'd want it to be powered by Linux. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> there needs to be more things like this in the world. All right, all right. And speaking of projects that are terrifying, but in an entirely different way, did you know, because somehow this just missed me entirely, a, a bunch of you probably know this this exists, but I did not, that Google... <coughs> excuse me, made smart fabric. Yeah. Yeah. They make smart fabric, like intelligent fabric. But if you're excited about that, if you're thinking that sounds awesome, too late, they're shutting that project down. (laughs) So just when I'm finding out about it, they're shutting the whole gosh darn thing down. They called it Project Jacquard. It was at the Google ATAP, the Advanced Technology and Projects Group. And they started this in 2015. So it's been going for like, you know, seven, eight years now. And they initially worked with Levi's, no kidding, to produce a Levi's jacket that had smart fabric built into it. Now, now here's, here's the thing. What does that mean? And so I did some digging trying to figure out exactly what you could actually do with smart fabric and what they really meant by that. So what they really meant by smart fabric is that they have a variety of different kinds of sensors stitched into the fabric in a variety of different ways to provide touch sensors and haptic feedback Yeah, inside your clothing that you could then pair with a smartphone and a smartphone app. Now, a lot of you are probably like me. You're thinking, what the heck would I do that for? Is that giving me cancer? And um, what are they going to use to that? How are they going to use that to spy on me? Right? Of course. Well, yeah. So so they went so far as to use this in a variety of different ways. The Jacquard app, the Jacquard Google Android app, allowed you to pair it with your clothing so you could tap on certain areas of, say, your jacket or your backpack, because they made those too, to play songs. You could brush certain areas of your fabric in different ways to both change the volume up and down and to move forward and backward in music tracks. And there were certain parts of your jacket that you could cover up with your hand, like you just cover it. And what it would do is it would mute the volume as long as your hand was there, or mute notifications so you wouldn't hear notifications anymore. Weird stuff, right? So after they made this with Levi's, right? These this this smart jacket that definitely doesn't give you cancer, wink wink. They also partnered with Samsonite and Yves Saint Laurent to produce smart backpacks. And then Adidas put the same sort of technology inside soccer shoes. Huh? Okay. Uh, it, it, this is just wild to me. Now apparently Apparently, this is all getting canceled, though. So according to a website called 9to5Google, they did some looking at the new version of the Jacquard Google Android app, and it looks like they're they're doing preparations for shutting the whole thing down. Google isn't saying anything about it, but it looks like they're kind of winding the whole project up. But wild, absolutely wild, and kind of terrifying. I, 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 I am... Not, what was the right word I'm looking for here? 
I do not trust technology. I love technology. I love my computers. I I love my mobile gadgets, but I don't trust them. And I don't, in part because I've seen how the sausage is made. I worked at Microsoft. I worked on Windows. I, I've worked at Linux companies. I've worked on Linux. I, I know what that code is like. I know what the process is to, to test this code, to push this code to production. And I know how jank it all is. It's, I mean, it's beautiful. It's wonderful. Computers are amazing. But oh my goodness, once you know how the sausage is made, I, I don't know that you end up wanting it stitched into your underwear. You know what I'm saying? And while I have not heard any reports of the Google Project Jacquard stitching smart fabric into underpants, I feel like that's just one step away. And I, I'm just... Ah. Anyway, it's going away. And that's probably for the best. Oh, 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 oh. This is kind of fun news. Have you ever used curl? C-U-R-L. It's a nice, simple command line tool for fetching things from URLs, right? Give it a URL, boom, it can grab some stuff. It's a great way for downloading things. If you if you use Linux or, or any of a variety of Unix or BSDs, you've probably used Q, uh, CURL or curl many, many times. Well, did you know that it's 25 years old? Yeah, that thing is 25 years old now. I'll read you a little quote here from Daniel Stenberg, who is the the Curl project lead. He says, quote, exactly one month since the previous release, we are happy to give you Curl 8.0, released on Curl's official 25th birthday. This is a major version number bump but without any groundbreaking changes or fireworks. We decided it was about time to reset the minor number down to a more manageable level, and doing it exactly on Coral's 25th birthday made it extra fun. <coughs> mm, excuse me. There is no API or ABI break in this version. This is likely the best Curl release we have ever made. <laughs> well, congratulations to the Curl team. So many different projects piggyback on Curl. Uh, so many, if you read through any various wiki or how-to manual or project guide for Linux or BSDs or, or any piece of software that sits on top of it, the odds of you running Curl more than once every day is pretty high. So uh, hats off to them. I'm glad they exist. And here's to 25 more years. That's a quarter of a century. A single, simple seeming software project going for a full quarter of a century. How amazing is that? It's amazing. Ab absolutely amazing. All right. Let's get to the bummer stuff. Layoffs. You know this was coming. Uh, the, the layoff train in the tech world continues to pound forward mercilessly. In the last two weeks, Indeed laid off 2,200 people. Amazon laid off another 9,000 people. Meta laid off another <coughs> 10,000 people. Logitech. Oh my gosh, Logitech. I mean, it's not huge in numbers. They laid off 300 people. But still, Logitech, makers of the trackball that I love. <laughs> Great mice. Logitech laid off 300 people. Which brings the total for 2023 to date to 153,208 people 
laid off in the tech industry. Wild. And that does not include the huge number of layoffs happening at at non-tech companies that are disproportionately impacting IT workers, including Accenture, which is laying off 19,000 people, which is it is assumed that a large portion of that 19,000 would be IT workers in some regard. Which means that we are just about to, here in March, eclipse the total number of layoffs in the tech industry that we saw during the entirety of 2022. The first three months of this year, we are beating the full 12 months of last year. We only got about uh, seven, 8,000 to go. And we got about a week left. <laughs> Can we do it? Go team. <laughs> Goodness gracious. And if you've, if you've been following along, you already know that the number of layoffs we're seeing now is astro- absolutely astronomical compared to the layoffs that we saw during the dot-com bust. During the the bursting of the dot-com bubble, we saw a fraction of these layoffs. This is by far the most layoffs that has ever hit the tech industry ever. Now you might say, well, the tech industry is bigger now. And that is true. Absolutely. But we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people combine this quarter with the with last year and we're over 300,000 layoffs we're approaching a third of a million layoffs in 15 months wow now now what what have we got coming up who knows who knows? We're going to keep following it. We're going to keep watching. This is, a, this is a big thing. And I've said it before and I've said it again. I'll say it again. This is not all doom and gloom. This is a correction that needed to happen. It is painful and it is always incredibly hard to watch friends, colleagues, and even ourselves get laid off from jobs that we love. But the tech industry exploded. Over the last decade, it has exploded in unmanageable ways. And the sheer number of workers, of programmers, project managers, testers, and a wide variety of different roles that probably shouldn't even exist, that do not directly help get these software and hardware products shipped and maintained it is just astronomical this is an adjustment that had to happen there was no way to continue this this way indefinitely and hopefully come the end of this year we'll be able to look back at a much more stable tech industry where nerds like us can work with other nerds like us (laughs) And people who really want to be there and are truly passionate about the tech towards making the future of computing even greater. And the jobs will be a little bit more stable. 
Well, here's here's hoping, fingers crossed, knock on wood, salt over the shoulder, and all the other various things we can do. Wish upon a falling star. I I I think it's going to be okay. I think we've got some more months ahead of us of some more rocky layoffs, but I think in the end we're going to be okay. And we got a break coming up. Stick around. We got more coming up. If I had the means, I mean the means you need, my darling. We could have scummed away so gaily on my penny farthing. In my heart should be, cause there's no second seat. An acrobatic feat, a challenge I would gladly meet for you. It's clear there's no veneer. Right about now, this is the part of the Lunduke Big Tech Show where we normally get into the history of computing. What happened this week in computing history? But we're not going to do that today. In part because I'm still recovering from what awful, horrible virus onslaught has has pummeled me. And I just don't think that I can stay upright recording a show for the extra hour that that would, that would, that would require. So we're going to dive right into listener questions. Because there's some great ones. There's some really good questions here. And I don't want to go another week without hitting some of these. The first one here is from Bradford. Bradford says, quote, last show you mentioned that the folks working on a lot of stuff at Microsoft today are not passionate technologists as they were earlier on. I've noticed this at other places in my own career. Do you believe that this shift to having, quote, normies, (laughs) normies in programming positions is likewise causing the general degradation in software quality seen across the sector, or is that something else entirely? No, Bradford, you are spot on. I I don't know that I would have used the word normies, but yes, normies. There was a time when if you were going to be in a programmer, or even a tester, or a project manager at Microsoft... Apple, Sun, a variety of other companies. You were going to be a nerd. I mean, not just a little nerdy, not just a bit geeky. You were going to be the kind of person that identified with your computer. You had a you had a relationship with your Commodore 64. You felt love, true true fondness for your Commodore 2 or your or your Apple 2, right? You you just did. But nowadays, that is not the case. While there are still lots of us who are truly passionate about it, who feel deeply about producing amazing software and, and, and dream and code, we are becoming more and more not the majority. A larger amount of people have, have, have joined ranks at so many companies, Microsoft included, but also Apple, Google, Amazon, so many others, it's small firms too, where they're not in it because this is their passion. They're in it because it's a good job. They're in it because the pay is good. They're in it because there's a certain amount of perceived prestige They're in it because they think it makes them look smart. They're in it because they like it, they enjoy it, but it's not their passion. I I was reading, I was reading an article written from some, by someone uh, on one, one tech news site or another. It was an opinion piece. 
uh, railing against the idea that programmers and a day job would ever think about programming in their time off. And this author was saying, no, no, I shoot, I don't even like to program. I just do it while at work. You can't make me do it on my time off too. Er." And I thought that was fascinating because it showed, it showed a legitimate lack of interest in it. I didn't understand that. Because the time I came from, if you got into programming as a profession, it's because that's what you did. It's because that's what you dreamed of. Now, there's nothing wrong, nothing wrong at all with not being passionate about programming software. Heavens, it would be ridiculous if most people were passionate about that. Even computer hobbyists and enthusiasts, even people who love computing, many people listening to the show, <coughs> excuse me, you don't need to be passionate about programming, but you want the people who are producing the software that you're using to be those people. That's who I want building the software I use. And you can see that shift. You can see the direct results. Is is the quality of Windows now worse than it was, say, when Windows 2000 release, was released? I think, I think objectively, of course. Uh, Windows 2000 was, was, a, was light years more stable, fast, uh, streamlined, uh, just better designed than Windows 8, 10, 11. And I believe the the real reason for that, at least one of the many driving forces is not just the programmers, but the designers, the project managers, the testers, everyone involved, top to bottom, are becoming increasingly less nerdy. You don't need nerds in every position in every company. But there are certain positions in those nerdy software, computing hardware, etc. companies. You want those to be nerds. <coughs> Excuse me. Still recovering here. <laughs> so yes, absolutely. This shift has brought down a huge degradation in software. Look at, look at Apple. Mac OS as it stands right now is not as cutting edge, as fascinating, as as streamlined or as well designed as it was before. It's not. Windows, same deal. And in fact, you can make the case for the same thing for Linux. You can make that very strong case. Now, what we're seeing happen throughout the entire computer industry with the mass layoffs is a result of this. Computer companies, software companies, hardware companies have hired so many people that do not directly contribute to creating great software because they're not passionate about it. This is not the, the, the line of work they should have been in. And we have... Not just thousands, but hundreds of thousands of people like that. 
And we're seeing massive layoffs right now as companies try to, I, I hate to say trim the fat, but trim the fat. Unfortunately, a lot of the real nerds are going to get swept up in those layoffs as the companies try their best to, to, to kind of get it all figured out. But in the end, I think we're going to see a lot of those people, those normies, as, Brad, as Bradford so, so succinctly put it, leaving the industry. And I think that can be nothing but a good thing. They're, it doesn't mean they're bad people. It doesn't mean they don't have great things to contribute in life. But if they're not passionate about building amazing software, if they don't dream about it, if they haven't been dreaming about it since they were a kid, maybe they shouldn't be doing it. You know what I mean? That's just where I stand on that. Uh, I, that's my personal feelings. You guys can disagree all you like, uh, but that's, that's kind of where I stand on that. Um, I got, uh, oh, oh, hold on, hold on here. MG Addict asks, this is another question, and it's a brilliant one, quote, why didn't the internet die when net neutrality was revoked? (laughs) Thank you so much for asking that. Remember, remember how many groups, how many people, remember everyone was shouting from the rooftops, if we don't have good quality net neutrality rules and legislation. We will not be able to use the internet. We will not be able to post things on the internet. People will not have good internet speeds at all. What happened? And, and I, I kept telling people, net neutrality is not that big of a deal, guys. It's not, it's not what you think. The net neutrality legislations, uh, the net neutrality rules don't mean, okay, well, all of a sudden now I get to post whatever I want on the internet and I'm safe. No, they also don't mean, oh, I'm going to have good internet speeds. Nope, they don't mean that either. So when we get rid of the net neutrality legislations, which happened, what happened? We got the internet speeds in general went up, <laughs> both both on average and peak. And people were not all of a sudden starting to get blocked from places. In fact, m- more people arguably got blocked from, from using certain websites when net neutrality rules and legislations were in effect. <coughs> Excuse me. So yes, net neutrality was not necessary. Uh, there were some good ideas in the net neutrality rules that got bandied about. There were. But in the end... It was just not that big of a deal. And even though so many people, so many organizations, and I'm not just gonna, I'm not going to just give you a list right now, but if you start looking around at all the different organizations that were screaming from the rooftops and trying to raise money on the backs of we need net neutrality, well, you realize now that they were all wrong. And they all said that I was wrong. But I wasn't. <laughs> that feels pretty good. That feels pretty good. All right. Um, Scott asks, what is your favorite operating system and why is it Mac OS 9 or earlier? <laughs> oh, I, I'm not going to lie. I do love classic Mac OS. It's not perfect. What I love about classic Mac OS and for those of you who have never had the chance to really use it on a regular basis, it's a fundamentally flawed system 
that is absolutely beautiful. And I don't mean beautiful in the UX design way. I don't mean beautiful in the, oh my gosh, it makes pretty screenshots, which it does. At least it can. I mean that it has a certain elegance and simplicity to it that we have fundamentally lost. It was a unique and different system that was so fundamentally unlike other systems of the day that it it was beautiful in its own right. It had features like extensions and control panels. The idea that you have a visual file that is your driver that you can just drag and drop in and out of a folder and it turns drivers on and off. Brilliant. Brilliant. Things like uh, controls, the control strip was great. The general, the window shades, click a little button and your window whoop, scrolls up into a, a, a just the title bar itself. Little, little things like that. Resource forks. Everyone's like, what the heck's a resource fork? Well, in a Mac file, like let's say you have a Macintosh application. If you've ever used an old Mac application, you remember that as a general rule of thumb, it was one file and one icon, and that was the whole app. You didn't have a a big giant directory full of folders and files and DLLs and whatnot. No, it was just a single file. Well, that's because inside that application, there was a resource fork. And what was in that resource fork was essentially a database of pictures, sounds, localizable text strings, all sorts of different resources that the application could use. And what was amazing about it, and that was all within that same file, and you could edit it. Yeah, you could go in and edit all the little text in all of your applications. You could edit all the graphics in all of your applications. It was amazing. And then they had Apple script dictionaries, which allowed some of the most amazing scriptability and automation and recordable scriptability that has ever been seen in any operating system. Now, the multitasking of a Mac OS 9 or earlier machine was cooperative instead of preemptive, which meant one poorly behaved application took the whole system down with a very sad Mac bomb. And that did did happen regularly. Whether whether we want to look through rose-colored glasses at the, the past history of the Macintosh or not, it, those systems crashed. <laughs> and they crashed a lot. But the things they did, the things they did right, were beautiful. And I feel like when you look at operating systems nowadays... Not only have we lost some of the simplicity of the classic Macintosh type systems, but some of the things that those systems did so amazingly well that were groundbreaking and truly beneficial to end users, everyone has tossed them aside, including Apple. And that to me is a major bummer. So yes, you know what, Scott? In a lot of ways, Mac OS 9 and the earlier systems are among my favorite operating systems to ever exist. Because they were unique and they were beautiful and they were flawed. But we loved them anyway. All right, stick around. We got one more segment coming up right after this.
Welcome back to the final segment of Lunduk's Big Tech Show for this week. Again, we're just going to do the one hour this week, and then Lunduk is going to go lay down uh, because he's not fully well. But I'm, I'm sticking with it for a little bit more. we got a couple more questions I want to get to because these are some really good ones. Uh, the ne- first one right off the bat is from Dan. As someone, he says, who has used all three of the big operating systems over the years, I find it mildly frustrating when Linux evangelists, he puts that in quotes, try to convince normies, <laughs> there comes that word normies again, to make the switch because of philosophical reasons. While I agree with FOSS ideals, free and open source software, I don't think this is effective or very useful as non-nerdy friends and family usually just want a device to get their work done and to entertain them. Most could literally care less about our opining. Could you lay out a practical case for why people, normal computer users in particular, should consider trying to use Linux as their regular operating system, along with the realities of the struggles that they might face? That's a fantastic question, Dan. Because you're right. You're absolutely right. In fact, I've had this exact debate with Stallman himself. Multiple times now, Stallman, Richard, and I have had that debate where I agree with Stallman that free software is a great way to go. Open source software is a great way to go. But if we're trying to convince people to use a computer strictly on that merit alone, we're just not going to get very far. If the computers themselves aren't fundamentally better or more interesting or more engaging or more pretty or something, people are going to go use something proprietary, something that is prettier, that is better. They just are. The philosophical arguments for using one type of software over another are a non-starter for most people. That's just the fact of the matter. So, the question is, how do you convince people to try to use Linux, or let's let's broaden it out a little bit, and say open source software and free software in general, over, say, Windows or, or Mac OS or one of the other proprietary solutions out there? And I think the the case for making that case, the, the ability to justify using, say, Linux now is far easier than it ever has been. In years past, we had to say, you, you, you want to use Linux because the source code is open and it's free, which means free in cost, which means reduced cost. Reduced cost is always a good winner. That always has been. But things just didn't always work. I mean, how often did you try to get Linux up and running on a laptop in the late 90s or the, the early 2000s and the Wi-Fi didn't work, the sound didn't work, your the resolution of your screen wasn't quite right, you couldn't get the 3D acceleration working, <sighs> good luck with any of that. For some reason, your SATA driver didn't work. Like, things just didn't always work. Couldn't even, sometimes you couldn't get your trackpad working. It was crazy making. And so when you sat down to try and convince, say, your, 
your parent or your uncle or your friend to make the switch or your boss to make the switch over to Linux. You had to say, okay, here's the hardware you currently have. Does it work great with Linux out of the box right now? And the answer 99% of the times was no. No, it does not. So then you had to fall back to, but it's worth it. But it's worth it because you're probably not going to be impacted by viruses. Ah, that is a win. That is a win, especially if you're coming from Windows land. Uh, not not as big of a deal with, for, for the Mac users out there because they're probably not getting hit by the viruses either. But from the Windows land, you know what? That, that was a big win. You could talk about the the spying aspect. But back then, that wasn't as big of a deal. Back then, Mac OS wasn't spying on you so much. Back then, your, your phones weren't even spying on you quite as much. Windows wasn't spying on you all that much. Sometimes some versions of Windows later on had activations and whatnot, but it wasn't as big of a deal. But nowadays, nowadays we're blessed. Because nowadays, most of the time, you can find a Linux distribution that is going to work out of the box on the vast majority of computer hardware that is out there today. So if people have a Dell laptop, an HP laptop, um, uh, whatever, an Alienware rig, odds are, if you just throw Ubuntu on it, it's going to work. Which means the old, the old, oh, I know it's not going to, I know it's not going to work out of the box, but there's other good things about it. You don't have to deal with that anymore. You just put that off to the side. So now what we have is forget about the philosophical benefits. You can install a system on your computer that does not spy on you, that does not require product activation. Period. End of story. With, with a few exceptions. <laughs> Come on, Ubuntu. Um, but for the most part, you avoid all of those things, which people are becoming increasingly concerned about and increasingly aware of. Now, a lot of people are okay with those things. They, they, they recognize that there's a certain amount of, of data collection that's happening in their Windows 11 machines or on their Macs, and they've decided that the trade-off is worth it. And that's fine. That's their choice. It's totally okay. Their power, their freedom. But if they're the type of person that's worried about that, coming in and saying, you know what? Move over to Linux. Not a problem. And we know it's not a problem because the source code is open, which means... There's thousands of eyeballs looking for those issues, looking for the code that might be spying on you. And if anyone ever does sneak it in, it's only a matter of time before the public finds out about it and removes it. Which isn't the case with Windows and Mac. And I think that's a really powerful argument for anyone who is worried about their privacy and their security which is a growing amount of number of people. Now, other, other arguments to be made are the speed and performance arguments. If you run an Intel-powered Mac, but are trying to run the latest version of Mac OS that runs on it, it is going to run much slower than the previous versions. 
That's just the way it is. Mac OS get got real bloated. The same is true over on the Windows side. If you had an Intel or AMD based computer that was running, say, Windows 7, and then you upgrade to Windows 8 and 10, and even if you can run 11, which, you know, many of you won't be able to because of TPM2 and all that sort of thing, your speed is going to suffer. You now have a significantly more bloated system that's taking up a lot more CPU, a lot more RAM, and a lot more hard drive space. Switch over to Linux, and you go from a system that requires 11 gigs to a system that requires 1 gig, which I would argue is still way too much. I would still argue that that modern-day Linux is way bigger than it should be. However, it is svelte compared to Mac OS and Windows. Modern Ubuntu, with every bell and whistle and every package installed, is looks like an anorexic stick figure next to Windows 11 and modern Mac OS. And we all know that that's true. So, making that, that simple case, to me, is a fairly powerful one. And then there's one extra thing. There's the one additional thing that I feel like speaks to the power users out there. Speaks to the people that want to truly customize their machine. And that is look and feel and workflow customization is nearly infinitely possible on most open source desktop systems, the BSDs and Linux and all of it, with multiple desktop environments, window managers, scripting systems, the works. Whereas Windows and Mac have increasingly moved away from even things as simple as desktop themes. There was a period of time where Microsoft embraced detailed theming of their system. There was a period of time where Apple tried to give people whole appearance toolkits to make their system look however they wanted to, with different borders and buttons and everything. That is no longer the case. Apple and Microsoft want your computer to look like everyone else's computer. But if you make that case and you say, hey, you install this, you install Linux... Not only is does it cost you no money, and it's going to work with your hardware, just like Windows or Mac currently does. Their performance is going to be as good or better for almost everything you could want to do. The amount of gaming you can do on it is, well, maybe not as good as Windows, but probably more than everyone needs. I mean, Steam itself, come on. The huge Steam library there is, is obscene. You have more security. You have more privacy. You have more assumption of security and privacy going into the future. And on top of all of that, you can make your system look and behave however you want. And try doing that on Windows or Mac. At least the current ones. <laughs> I feel like that is a, that is a positive pitch. To me, if I have the option... excuse me, if I have the option 
of course I'm going to choose Linux over the other two currently. And again, that's coming from a guy who absolutely loved classic Mac OS and was a developer for Mac OS X for years and loved it. And coming from a guy who actually worked at Microsoft on Windows 2000 and loved it. But if I'm picking something now, I want the security, I want the privacy, I want the speed, I want the control, because it's my computer, not Microsoft's, not Apple's. It's mine, and I want to run root if I want to, because Thunderdome... <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, everybody. Uh, that, that brings us to the end of this week's glorious, glorious show. Thank you, everyone, for hanging out with me. Sorry it's not the full two hours. As you can hear, I'm not, I'm not fully up for it. I, I, think, I think if I went about another 15 minutes, boop, I'd be done. <laughs> but uh, hopefully that means that I'm infinitely better than I was last week this time. So hopefully next week I'll be back to full power and a full two-hour show. Go head over to lunduke.locals.com and hang out with me over there. Also, you can check out all the stuff at lunduke.substack.com. Be a part of the community. Hang out with us. We're always having a good time. There's a Discord channel. There's everything. We're rocking out and having a great time. Thank you to all the subscribers. To all of you who have been around. Some of you recently. Some of you just joined up. Some of you have been around for years. Thank you to all of you for making all this possible. It's a great time, and uh, I, I have literally the best bosses in the world. All, I don't know how many thousands of you. Uh, you guys are the best. Uh, I, 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 I am truly a blessed and lucky man. And on a personal note, on a personal note, I'm coming to you today from the swamps of Louisiana, my new home. Uh, the Lunduke family, and many of you know this, many of you may not, We've been on the search for the perfect place to call home for two and a half years. We've been traveling, visiting family, going to national parks, going to museums, really just checking the whole place out, having an adventure, and trying to find that perfect home, that perfect town and state for us. And the swamps of Louisiana, Cajun, Cajun country, Acadiana, was never on our list. <laughs> Not even for a moment. In fact, we decided to stop here to try exactly one restaurant that my wife had read in a book was pretty tasty. <laughs> so we pull into this place and we try that restaurant and lo and behold, it was tasty. They had great gumbo. And what went from, let's stay here for a couple of days, turned into, let's stay here for a couple of weeks. You know, there's a lot of fun stuff to do. To, let's stay here for three months, four months. We kept staying. We kept loving it. Eventually, we had to tear ourselves away and move on because we had a list of other cities and states to check out that we, we thought, you know what, on paper, these other cities and states, they just have so much to offer us. So we moved on. And as we drove away, as we drove away from the swamps of Louisiana, from the home of Cajun country, we immediately grew homesick. And as we started checking out other cities and towns, and we had a great time doing so, meeting great people, 
seeing great areas, and eating some delicious food. Every day that went by, we missed the swamp. We missed the bullfrogs croaking. We missed the crawfish. We missed the gators. Or as they call them around here, Louisiana guard dogs. We missed it all. So one day, me and my family look at each other. My crew of Lundukes, as nerdy as we are, we just, we all looked at each other. And we're like, we, we want to go back. We go want to go back to the swamp. So here we are. After two and a half years of searching, we found our home, our new hometown. And I couldn't be more excited about it. Of course, as soon as we got here, I got every virus known to man and have been laid up in bed for two weeks. But as I'm starting to feel better, we can finally start venturing out, doing a little little house hunting, and trying to settle ourselves in. And thank you to everyone as you've been patient with, with, with me and with the Lunduke Journal as we've, we've hunted for our new home. But we can finally begin to get our new studio set up. We can get the new show going. And I can settle into a more regular routine, which I'm pretty excited about too. So again, it's a pretty exciting time for me. And thank you to everyone. Thank you to all of you that I was able to meet across the way. We held a meetup in Texas. I've met a bunch of friends in Arizona, California, Texas, Alabama. Met all, all sorts of you all over the place. And it's been absolutely fantastic. And I hope to meet a whole bunch of you over the coming weeks, months, and years as I kind of plug myself into the conferences and tech shows that happen around the, the southern part of the United States. The shows that I've never had the chance to really enjoy before. I'm looking forward to them. All right, everybody. Make sure you come back next week for Lunduke's Big Tech Show. Back to two hours, I'm hoping. <laughs> unless I Unless I get Ebola or something. <laughs> Then I might take the week off. That's the rule around here. We take the week off for Ebola. And uh, hopefully everything's back to just semi-normal production for all the articles and comics and whatnot over the rest of the week as well. All right, everybody. That's it for now. And with that, I bid you adieu and declare end broadcast. Father wears his Sunday best. Mother's tired. She needs a rest. Kids are playing up downstairs Sister's sighing in her sleep Brother's got a date to keep He can't hang around Our house In the middle of our street Our house 